It's nice to be able to see my notes this week. Thank you all for moving the podium down. I bring you greetings from Heritage Baptist Church in Mansfield. The elders there are deeply involved in what you're going through, and they're praying for you, and we're praying for you. And if your spouse or your parents or your kids haven't told you they love you today, let me tell you, I love you. And that instantly sounds as cheap and superficial because you go, hey, Jack, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. How can you say you love me? Well, Jesus told a story about a Jewish man who was on a trip and got beaten up by some robbers and dumped in a ditch. And somebody from another race and religion came by and saw him laying in the ditch, a Samaritan of all people. You know, the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans returned the favor. So the Samaritan had compassion on him, bound his wounds, took him to an inn, paid, which was a primitive hospital, paid for him to be cared for. And Jesus asked the man who was giving him a hard time, which, you know, other men had passed him by, but this man stopped and helped him. Which of the three men do you think, the two, the first two people who went by, or the third man, which of the three really loved the man? And the questioner said, well, I guess the guy who helped him, who did him good. And Jesus said, well, that's exactly right. That loving someone is not having ooey-gooey feelings toward each other. I don't have ooey-gooey feelings toward anybody in this room that I know of. Not even Dennis. But, uh, but I do care for what happens to you. I do care that you do well. I do care that you make it as a church, that your family makes it to glory. So I bring you greetings from Heritage Baptist Church. I bring you the love of Christ. We're going to be looking at three passages of Scripture briefly. You can either listen to me read them, or you can turn there to make sure I'm really not pulling the wool over your eyes. The first one is in Ephesians chapter 5, a famous passage where Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit. And as I learned after being a pastor for several years, that almost all the time in Paul's letters when he talks about you, Paul must have grown up in southern Israel because it's the plural you. It's not you singular like hey, Steve, you need to do this. It's all y'all, having come from Atlanta. So you in Paul's epistles usually means all y'all. So it's not just one or two people, like the pastor need to be filled with the Spirit. The whole congregation needs to. But look at what he says happens if you really are a Spirit-filled person. Let's begin in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, which is a first century way of getting drunk, or you can put in whatever opiates or things to get high on or comparable today. And do not get drunk with wine or whatever, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Now that's a command. All y'all be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says here that if you really are a spirit-filled people, you will be, among other things, you will be a thankful people. He says, you are to be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always, not most of the time or some of the time or when it's to your advantage, supposedly, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just to show he wasn't picking on the Ephesians, turn over to the book of Colossians, two books to the right, Colossians chapter 3. Verse 16 and 17. Here the admonition is not to be filled with the Spirit, it's to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's interesting that he's telling the Colossians, if you're really a person of the word, if you really think you're a person who's in the word and hopefully the word is in you, then you're going to be a thankful person. He told the Ephesians, if you really fill with the Spirit, you're going to be a thankful congregation. So two things that are equal to the same thing are equal to, to each other. So being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word dwell within you richly are equal to one another. They produce the same results. And so we ought to be a, a thankful people. Now, I particularly chose this message because I know something of what you're going through. And uh, as I've said many times in my life, policemen and pastors know too much. We've seen too much sin. We've seen too much of human nature that's off the radar. And so we know some of the things that other people miss. And this is an important message for you all because God wants you to honor him, not just in the good times, not when you got the promotion, not when you got the raise, not when your test came back negative, not when your kid hit the home run, not all for all the things we might give thanks for, but when all those things came back differently, when you didn't get the raise, you got fired, when your son's didn't hit the home run, he struck out with the bases loaded, when your test came back positive and you had the disease. Do you trust God and do you show your trust in that time by thanking him or do we immediately go into some kind of whining, negative pity party? It's important that you honor God in these hard times. God's given you this test as a people, as a congregation. And what are you going to do with it? Are you going to pass the test? You're going to get a C minus? You're going to get a barely passing D minus. I got, I got a D minus once. I was thankful for that D minus. Uh, are you going to get a D minus or are you just going to flunk it? So we're going to look at thankfulness and I have one other passage to look at. It's perhaps the most clear, the most abundant. First Thessalonians 5. If you'll turn there. If you ever ask yourself, what is God's will for me? What does God want me to do? Well, there's not a verse or a portion of the scripture that says, Thou shalt take a job and move to Houston, or thou shalt marry this person. But, backing up to verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. I wonder if it means that in the Greek. Do you think maybe it just means some circumstances or the good ones? No, it seems to say give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you all. For you, you all. Every single circumstance that comes into your life, God wants you to trust him. And as an expression of your trust is not merely resignation. Okay, I'm going to put my head down and, and endure like a cow in a field trying to endure a thunderstorm. Can't quite figure out what's going on, but it just has to put its head down and endure. Or because I know my God, I know that he loved me in eternity past. He sent his son in time to rescue me. He sent the Holy Spirit to make me care that his son died on the cross. He gave me the Holy Spirit as a gift. He's given me a book. He's given me the church. If he would give me all these things, and a lot more I didn't even mention, I can, I can trust him with this circumstance. Even though I don't profess to quite understand what's going on, I don't understand why this had to come now, I don't understand why this had to come to me, but if you trust him, then you'll say thank you. So this morning, I want to look at three things. Number one, what is thankfulness and why I'm calling it an identity badge of a real Christian? If you're a real Christian, you will more and more become a thankful person. If you're merely religious, you won't be thankful. 
Why thanklessness or being unthankful is the identity badge of the unbeliever. And scripture as much as says that. If you're not a believer, you're rarely, if ever, a thankful person. And finally, I'm going to crunch some numbers for you that will blow you away about how you are one of the most blessed people in the history of the planet. Well, let's dig in. First of all, thankfulness. Why is thankfulness the identity badge of a real Christian? What is thankfulness in and of itself? What does it mean to be thankful? What is gratitude? Thanksgiving or thankfulness is a heartfelt gratitude for, by God's people for his love, his mercy, and his wisdom in saving me and taking care of me and all the details involved. Did you give God any counsel about what to do in eternity past? I don't think any of you did. Did you give him any counsel on, on saving you? Did you say, I'm really lost and rebellious, but here's some clues that might help you. Did any of you offer God your wisdom about how to take care of you in your BC days? No. God knows what he's doing in saving us. He knows what he's doing in growing us up and the doctrine of providence, which I just skated through last week on giving thanks in all things, excuse me, on God works in all things together for the good, for those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Every single molecule in the universe is serving God's purposes to make you like Christ and to get you to heaven. Thankfulness is used 170 times in Scripture this way, 170 times. It talks about God's people being thankful. It's a type of praise. You know, when you have a service and you talk about praise and thanksgiving, technically there's a little bit of a difference between praise and thanksgiving. Praise is giving God his due for who he is. If he'd never done a single thing for me, he'd still be worthy of praise. I wouldn't get it because I'd still be clueless and rebellious but he's still worthy of my praise, even if he had never done anything for me. But the fact he does and has done and continues to do things for me, I give him my thanks. Thanks is telling him, I'm grateful for what you do for me. Praise is, I worship you and adore you for who you are in and of yourself. Thanksgiving, praise, gratefulness, bubbles up naturally from the believer's heart because if you have the Spirit of God in you, he's going to produce a thankful heart. In fact, look to Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul. One of the things, you know, you can read the Bible many times and then the 37th time you read something, you go, hey, I see something I've never seen before. And in Romans chapter 11, after Paul's been rehearsing... Uh, rehearsing all the great glories of salvation from our depravity in chapter 1 and our condemnation all the way up to taking us to heaven. And then in chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, he breaks out in a doxology. He breaks out in praise. He breaks out in thanksgiving. It says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable beyond knowing his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Answer, nobody. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Nobody. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Oh yeah, anyway, back to my argument. And he goes back to his argument. Paul does that several times in his epistles. When he shares his testimony, if you want to turn over to um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
Paul shares his testimony and rehearsing what he was like in his BC days, what he was like before God saved him, and then God's intervening grace and changing him. Let's see here. Sometimes it's good. Okay, chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. A blasphemer is a person who takes the name of the Lord in vain. He uses Jesus' name as a punctuation mark in his sentences and his curses. And I was a persecutor. I went around arresting Christians. He didn't care if it was your mom or dad, and he didn't care if you were a kid and a professing Christian. He would have you arrested. And then my ESV says, insolent opponent. Different versions have different translations of this word. But Paul said, I had a mean streak, and I like to hurt people. Some people are like that in their natural depravity. They have a mean streak, and part of them likes to hurt people. Sometimes it's called sadism. Paul says, I was just a mean son of a gun. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full subscription, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Exhibit A, public enemy number one. I was the worst of the non-Christians, and God saved me. But he said, hey, if God can save me, think about it, God can save anybody. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the greatest example, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul says, think, if he can save the really bad dudes, the really depraved people, he can save people who seem less depraved. We're all depraved. Some of us act out more than others. Then what does Paul say immediately after that? Cool. No, he didn't say that. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, anyway, back to what I was talking about. Paul can't rehearse what God's done for him in salvation without going right to this time of praise and thanksgiving for what God's done for him. I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't be on my way to glory if it wasn't for the God of grace. So we see that in, in Paul's life as an example, public example number one. God wants us to give thanks in all things. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. Sometimes preachers ask people to do embarrassing things, but preachers never do it. They always tell other people to do it, so I won't do that. But have you thanked God for the mess that you're in right now? Have you thanked him that he knows what he's doing? Have you thanked, you, have you thanked him that he had planned this from eternity past? Have you thanked him that he knows what's doing for those individuals and for you all too? Have you thanked him? And there's a whole bunch of things you might thank him for. I'm not saying this to be difficult or to poke you. I'm just trying to remind you. The word remembers in the Bible. You know why? Because we forget. So I'm trying to remind you of something you probably already know. In 1975, there was a gal I knew distantly on Campus Crusade staff. I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ for a number of years. And she got married in Atlanta. And if you've ever lived in the southeast, you know from Atlanta to Miami is 
I-75. And so she wrote a book called At Least We Were Married because they got married, had the reception, got in the car, and headed for Florida. And south of Atlanta, about an hour and a half, a drunk going north on I-75 crossed the center median and hit them head on. And she woke up in the hospital two days later, and her brand-new husband was dead. And she was in the, hus- in the hospital for weeks. And she wrote a book about what she learned entitled, At Least We Were Married. Six months after this all hit the fan, she was out in California where Campus Crusade headquarters used to be, and she visited with the president, Dr. Bill Bright, who was a spiritually-minded man. We might not agree with him on all of his theology, but he was no uh, weakling. And he wanted to hear what had happened, and he cleared his schedule, and they spent time together. And, and so um, he, as he listened to her, he looked at her, and you know, she was saying, not only has this happened, but I've been miserable, I've been depressed, I can't sleep at night, I take sedatives, I take something to get up in the morning, I'm just messed up. And when she got all through, he looked at her and said, have you thanked God for the accident that killed your husband? She looked at him like he was from Mars. No, I haven't done that. He said, well, we need to. Do you believe the Bible to be the word of God? Well, of course I do. Well, do you believe Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 are true? Yes. Well, then if this is handpicked by God and it's working together for good, why can't you thank him? So they got down on their knees. He was one to always pray on his knees with people, and they got down on their knees in the, around the coffee table in his office And she thanked God for the first time in six months that this had happened. She poured out her heart, wept. Dr. Bright poured out his heart, wept with her. They parted. She wrote him a note a few weeks later, and she said, I have not had to take any sleeping pills. I don't have to take downers or uppers, and I can sleep at night for the first time since the accident, since that day that I said, Lord, you know what you're doing. By faith, I simply thank you. Some of you have heard of the, read the book. Some of you may have seen the movie years ago called The Hiding Place. It was about a Jewish family, excuse me, a Dutch family in Amsterdam that hid Jews during the war. And the hiding place was a spot in their house that was a dead spot. There should have been some kind of enlarged room there, but it was just a storage spot in the center of the house that you couldn't spot from the outside. And they hid Jews there, hid a number of Jews there. And they were finally discovered, and the whole family was put in a concentration camp. Her father and her mother and her brother and her sister all died in that concentration camp. Corey Ten Boom, the author of the book and the storyteller, was not a happy camper. She was not a spiritually minded person. She was very bitter, very upset. If you watch the movie or read the book, the real hero is her sister Betsy, who was spiritually minded, who did look at things from the biblical point of view. And one day there Corey just kind of lost it because in the barracks where the women stayed, there was lice everywhere. And if you have any sense of cleanliness, who's into lice, right? You, if, you, if, your kids, if your kids come home from school with lice, it's a big deal. Well, she was ranting and raving about the lice, and finally when she got through, her sister said, Corey, what's the one place in this whole concentration camp where no guard ever sets foot? Our barracks, why? Because they don't want to get lice on their uniforms and get lice in their hair. She said, Corey, these are God's lice, 
They keep the they keep the troopers out. They keep the guards out. This is the one place where we can talk and sing and pray and have Bible studies. These lice are God's guards to keep these other guards out of here. Can we give thanks for the lice? It never dawned on her to think that the lice might be a good thing, as much as you know made her squeamish. And they vowed that if God would ever let either one of them live to get out of there, they would go all over the world telling people, no matter how deep of a hellhole you're in, Jesus Christ is deeper still. And her sister died of pneumonia, and she, you know, when Betsy died, it's a sad part of the book because she was a godly woman. And Corey was released a couple of days later because an officer is typing in the, and typed the wrong key and typed the wrong number, and that number got released from the concentration camp. And the next day, all the women her age were gassed, but she survived. Huh, sure was lucky, huh? Let's see, all things work together for the good of those who love God or are the called according to his purpose. Corey was 51 when she went into the concentration camp. A single woman, not married, thought her life was going to be humdrum, proved not to be humdrum. She got out of the prison camp a few years later and spent the rest of her life until well into her 80s traveling all over the world, speaking on no matter what kind of a hellhole you're in, Jesus Christ is deeper still. And you can thank God for lice, and you can thank God for a number of other things if you see things from a biblical, spiritual point of view. We can go through examples, which I'm not going to multiply, of scriptures, of people thanking God for this or that or the other thing, and you can take my word for it. You can read through the Gospels and see how often does Jesus thank his Father for stuff. Thankfulness is the badge of a real Christian because real Christians are thankful. I was talking to a brother at the back there when I was getting mic'd, and he was talking about well, how thankful he was that God saved him, how thankful he was that God had worked in his life. He's not who he used to be. And none of us are yet who we want to be. Is anybody here who has arrived? We probably can't fellowship with you anymore because you're too spiritual and we can't be around you, but uh, let the tape reflect that nobody raised their hand. None of us have arrived. We're all in transit. We're all growing in grace. But we're so thankful that God saved us. I'm not who I used to be. I'm not on my way to hell. I'm not God's enemy. I'm not lost and clueless in a dark, cold universe. But why is thanklessness the identity badge of the unbeliever? And if you're sitting here and you go, man, I never think about being thankful. I never say thank you to God for anything, let alone my parents or my spouse. Thankfulness, thanklessness is the mark of the unbeliever. Another word for that is ingratitude. It's not in your nature to thank God or anybody else, really, but especially God. It's not in your nature unless you are well-trained by your parents to say thank you. My mother made me write thank you notes for every birthday and every Christmas. I was like, why do I have to do this? Because you're not an animal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> deal with it. And so under the threat of a uh, bullwhip, so to speak, she made me write thank you notes. When I was converted, the genius of that was not lost on me, and I tried to become a thankful man naturally. If you're not a thankful person, what are some words that might describe you? How do you respond to all the stuff in your life? Well, you're probably a person giving a presumption. I presume that people will treat me well, that good things will happen because I'm me. A spirit of entitlement, you've heard of that. I'm entitled to this. Have you seen all the commercials? This should happen to you. You deserve it. Really? 
covetousness or envy. Why, I'm not thankful that person got what they got. I want what they got. They shouldn't have had that. I should have had that. Or discontent. Are you a discontented person frequently? I know a friend of mine got a 25% raise. And his wife called up his boss to complain it wasn't big enough. Whoa, I wouldn't have been in that house after he found out about that. She called up his boss to complain it wasn't big enough. And so I knew the woman. I knew she had a problem with major discontent. So I took her out to lunch at a public place, and my wife knew I was going there. And I said, ma'am, how much of a raise would have been enough? I just kind of played dumb. And she said, well, maybe a hundred grand. Now, you know, 25 years ago, having a hundred grand raise was humongous. Not too bad at this day and age either, but still, he'd only gotten $20,000 a year raise, and she wanted a hundred. I said, what would you buy with all that? She went and started going into a list. I said, would that make you happy? And then she went on the list, would that make you happy then? Would that be enough? And finally she got to admit that that probably wouldn't be enough either. I said, well, you can put a lot of stuff into a black hole and it's going to disappear. Or self-pity. I didn't, I shouldn't have had to go through this. Woe is me. Self-pity. I was watching a show on the History Channel, which has very little history, but a lot of other junk on there. But uh, it was a show on comparing the personality profiles of Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, arguably two of the biggest monsters of the 20th century. And something they both had in common, it was spooky. They both had been hurt by other people growing up. They felt like their nation had been hurt. And they were both filled with self-pity. And, you know, between the two of them, probably 130 million people died. And they still felt sorry for themselves. But they could rationalize whatever they did to others, either through their government or personally, because they had been hurt. And they were full of self-pity. Bitterness. Thanks, God, for nothing. Arrogance. I'm me, and of course, I deserve good things. A sour disposition, murmuring, complaining, whining. And the core, I think, of all these things is just simply pride. I'm the center of the universe, and everything should revolve around me. And the fact that I didn't get what I want or something bad happened to me, this is terrible. When good things happen to the unbeliever, they say, well, I deserve to have this happen because I'm me. When good things happen to the unbeliever, they say, I deserve this. When bad things happen to the unbeliever, I deserve to be treated better than this. I didn't deserve this. Or when good things happen to other people that I didn't get, I should have what they have. I deserve what they have. And there are biblical examples of gross ingratitude. In the Garden of Eden, there were sins that were piling up before Eve ever plucked the forbidden fruit. The devil whispered, no, what God told you is a lie. And you know, that's just like him. He's keeping the good stuff from you because he knows if you will just rebel and do what he told you not to do, you'll become like him knowing good and evil. And they believed that. They had already sinned. They had already wanted these different things. God knows when you eat of it, you'll be like God. Yeah, that's right. I deserve to be like God. Unless we cluck our tongues and wonder, yeah, that Eve, she was a real stinker. Have you looked in the mirror lately? Do you ever think thoughts like that? That you want to be like God? That you want to 
be the center of all the universe? In Romans chapter 1, before Paul jumps into the list of all the gross things going on in the first century Roman Empire, Paul says in Romans 1.21, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became worthless in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to God. Yeah, there may be a God, but I'm not going to give him the time of day because I've got my own agenda and he's probably not for my agenda. So I'm going to do my thing and God, you take a hike and leave me alone. You know, my shame before I was converted at the age of almost 21 was that I wasn't rebellious and I never shook my fist against God. I didn't care. Who cares? The world revolves around me. And I wasn't a maniac or an egomaniac. Everybody else I knew was the same way. The world revolves around me. That's how you are before you're a Christian. You don't thank God for your existence. You don't thank God for the next breath you take. Do you ever wonder, and some things, this is the kind of things that kids will do. Do you ever wonder how you breathe when you're asleep because you're not thinking about it? Well, the autonomic nervous system says that you keep breathe, makes you keep breathing even when you're asleep and you're not consciously breathing. And you try to hold your breath. I'm going to hold my breath until I die. Well, you can't do that because you pass out and start breathing automatically. God made so many things unique about our bodies. Do we give thanks to him? No way. And then and sadly you go, well, that was in the old time when first century Rome. People aren't like that today. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, when he is his last letter to Timothy, he writes, understand that in the last days people will be, and then he has a long list of what people will be. And then he concludes by saying, I'm not talking about the world now, he says, I'm talking about churchgoers, holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. What does that mean? Yeah, I go to church, but there's nothing supernatural about it. God doesn't change your life. You're not really that different holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. And this is what it says about them in the last days. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I'll throw this in as a freebie. It's a shocker in some first century letters that Paul says, one of the marks of a decadent culture is that kids will disobey their parents. You go, "Uh, no, I've read in the Constitution, it's in the Bill of Rights, kids have the right to rebel against their parents. All American kids do it. That's not true. All American kids don't do it. And rebellion isn't universal. Most kids in the history of the world didn't have an attitude toward their parents, but it's a sign of a decadent culture going down the toilet. Disobedient to parents, and then he says, they're ungrateful. What does that mean, you're ungrateful? I got all this stuff, and I never thank anybody but myself if I think about it. By nature, the unconverted person attributes all the good in them in their lives to themselves. I made myself smart. I made myself strong. I made myself a good athlete. I made myself a musician. I made myself this. I made myself that. And, you know, because of the theory of evolution, nobody made me. I evolved. Well, actually, that's not a great, you know, you and snails both evolved. That doesn't make either one of you supremely special. But if you want to hide behind evolution, as one 19th century theologian said, Well, finally, non-Christians have come up with a way of explaining why stuff is the way it is without recourse to God. But evolution doesn't work, and more and more scientists at that level are showing that it doesn't work, and it's slightly, slowly becoming intellectually dis... um, What's the word? 
it's not the great thing now if you're at a certain level of science to hold to historic evolution because historic evolution doesn't work and doesn't explain how things are. Anyway, but our ingratitude and our thanklessness extends to all things. We're universally ungrateful people. I don't thank God for my life. You know, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this. Why did God create you in the first place? Did you have to exist? Was there some moral imperative that you got to make this? Oh, okay, I'll do it. I'll make this person. Was there some reason why God had to make you? Was he morally obligated to make you? No. God didn't have to make any one of us. We owe our existence to God. We don't thank God for sustaining our lives moment by moment. Who gave you the air to breathe? Who made your autonomic nervous system? Who makes your heart beat while you're sleeping? But no, I don't take that into consideration. It's all about me. And on and on it goes. I don't thank God for giving me a conscience. You know, why do you feel bad when you do wrong things? Well, because God gave you a judge, an arbiter, an umpire in your heart called a conscience that makes you feel bad when you do bad things. Why, why don't I thank God for his laws and his commandments? You know, I could live in, in an amoral universe where anything goes. I heard of, I've talked to a man who lived in the nation of Uganda during the Civil War there, and he said, whoever showed up at the bus stop with the biggest gun got on the bus. And one guy had a small pistol and was waving it around at the bus stop, intimidating people, but he showed up with a 357 Magnum, and he won the day and made the other guy give up his pistol, and everybody got on the bus, and his 357 Magnum was truth. Really? But we live in a moral universe. There is right and wrong because God is holy, 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 and his law does determine reality. But we don't thank God for living in a moral universe or his commandments. We don't thank God that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ came to earth, that Jesus Christ made the great exchange, that God was willing to give his son. I had a friend say at a conference where he knew a lot of the participants, he goes, I have three sons. I wouldn't give up any of them for any of you. God had one son, God the, God the Son Almighty, and he gave up that son for you. He who did not spare his own son. What does the word spare mean? That means if I come to your house and knock, kick in the front door, and I've got a big gun, and I say, I want to take your most valuable possession. Is it your husband? Is it your wife? Is it one of your kids? Or whatever you think is valuable. It said, God didn't spare even his own son, meaning you can take everything else. You can have every seraphim, every cherubim, everything else, but you can't have my son. God, who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, all of us believers, how shall he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? If he gave his son to you when you were clueless and in rebellion, is he going to treat you worse now that you're his blood-bought child? doesn't stand to reason. We don't thank God for sending the Holy Spirit who convicted us. You could have stood at the foot of the cross and in your lostness watched Christ be crucified and not give a rip. You could have watched the whole thing happen and your stony heart would have stayed the same because unless God the Holy Spirit changes your heart, nothing that you experience changes you. No suffering, no good times changes a person. God the Holy Spirit is the only power in the universe that changes the human heart. People in hell don't repent. They're going through misery. They're going through suffering. Are they repenting? No, because God's not giving his Holy Spirit to them all. They've blown off the Holy Spirit their whole life. He's not giving them the Holy Spirit anymore. They don't change. 
They don't thank God for his grace every day of their lives, one moment to the next. Why, if you're not a Christian, let me ask you, why have you ever had one good day? Why does God owe you a good day? Why is there even one good marriage among non-Christians? Why is there ever one day of happiness by any unbeliever in the world? Because God's a God of grace, but they don't thank him for it. We don't thank God for our food, clothing, or shelter. We don't thank him for our job, our paycheck, the money to buy stuff. We don't thank him for the church. We don't thank him for Christians. This Christian who's been witnessing to you, the fact that you're unsaved and you have Christian parents, and they pray for you, and they try to witness to you, and they try to evangelize you, and you wish they'd go away, or you can't wait till you graduate. How thankless can you be? Is you know anybody else that cares about your salvation? Do you know anybody at school who cares enough about you that they don't want you to go to hell, so they pray for you and they evangelize you? They don't thank God for giving them their minds, their bodies, a beautiful sunset. You know, one of the first things that God gave back to me after I was converted was the wonder of the created order came back. The wonder of the... Got some seats right here. That's okay. I don't spit, so you're in a safe place. The wonder of nature. You know, I can remember one day walking home from class, and here was an oak tree, 60 feet high, a spread of maybe 100 feet, a gorgeous, huge tree. And I hadn't taken enough biology classes taught by people without wonder to know that that tree is going to be pulling up a couple of tons of water out of the ground by capillary action and taking up to the very top of the tree. Huh. That would have been my BC response, but I marveled at the grace of God in creating a giant oak tree. Or watching a butterfly fly around in your garden and the wonder of how it works and how God made it. You can watch nature shows and tune out the evolutionary um, propaganda and see some beautiful things about creation. A sunset, a lightning bug glowing in the dark in June. If God doesn't change your heart, unbeliever, you will be a thankless person till the day you die, and you will not thank God for casting you into utter darkness. That's the the natural attitude of the unbeliever. Romans 1 says they, they didn't honor God as God. I don't, I don't care that you created everything. I don't think you did. This is my planet. We'll see what I do with it. They don't, they don't honor God, and they don't give thanks to him. That's a tragedy. You missed your opportunity to find out who you are. You'll never know who you are or why you, God created you until you lay down your arms of rebellion and submit to him that he graciously gives you a new heart and changes you, and begins to show you why he made you. Let me close with, by crunching some numbers for you. You may or may not have heard of of demographics. Demographics is the study of population and where people live, distribution. I used to actually take a magazine called American Demographics. I wasn't in the dorkdom. I just wanted to find out what they knew about where people live. Dorkdom is a place where dorks live, in case you didn't know. Um, Demographers estimate there are 7.3 billion people in the world today. 7.3 billion. Nearly 320 million of these are Americans. So about two, excuse me, between 4% of the world's population live in America. But demographers also believe that half the people who've ever lived in human history are alive today. 
People live longer. We save more babies. You don't go to cemeteries and see rows and rows and rows of little headstones with a, a little lamb on it because people lost so many children in infancy. I know men who had 10 kids and buried nine of them, and their 10th child buried them in the old days. We live longer. We save more lives. So they estimate that half the people who have ever lived are alive today, the 7.3 billion people. If America has 300 million people, and maybe just 10% are real Christians, I'll be generous. That would make 30 million Christians in America. That, if you're a Christian, that puts you in the top two-tenths of 1% of all the people who have ever lived. Of all the people who have ever lived, you're in the top two-tenths of 1% by being an American because God chose to put you here at this time. But God's blessings haven't stopped there. The greatest concentration of material wealth, natural resources, mechanical and technical advancement, physical health, and abundant food supply in all of history is in America. He gave you this. The greatest concentration of Christian wealth, Christian literature, Christian media, radio, TV access, Bible-believing seminaries, Christian conferences, knowledgeable speakers and writers, ease of travel to bring blessing to you and others is uniquely a gift of living in America. God has allowed you to live the seed of the recovery of the Protestant Reformation. Why are you in a church that teaches the historic doctrines of grace that Protestants used to all believe? Why are you in a church that's held to the the old paths? It's by the grace of God to you. There's growing thousands of pastors and seminarians are studying and teaching the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, and he's included you in this. Not all Christians believe in the old paths, but let's say roughly 25% of all believers do. You're in the top one two hundredth of one percent of all the human beings who have ever lived. You're in the top. You're in the top one two hundredth of one percent of all Christians who have ever lived. Are you a thankful person? How many Bibles do you have in your home? Is somebody out in the parking lot writing down license numbers so you're going to lose your job when you go to work tomorrow? Are people going to be out in your front yard with torches wanting to, to kill you because you're a Christian? The, uh, the number of blessings you have are incredible. I know that you're going through a hard time. I wouldn't wish this on a local congregation. But our God has chosen it for you. And I want you to honor him by saying, God, I believe you know what you're doing. I believe you love me. There's no question about that. I believe you're too wise to make a foolish decision. That this, you're sovereign. This hasn't overpowered you. And you're holy, holy, holy. So I not only trust you, but as an expression of my trust, I simply thank you. Go home and make a list of your blessings. Make sure it's a big pad, because you'll need a big pad to write down all your blessings. But put what you're dealing with at the top of it, because God has assigned it to you, and he wants you to trust him. And the best way to show that you trust him is simply say, thank you. I was at the bedside of a woman who was dying, She had grown up in a denomination that teaches you can lose your salvation, and doctrines have consequences, so she's on her deathbed, and I was asked to go see her. I'd never met her, and I was reluctant to go witness to a person who was on their deathbed I had never met, but I went there, and she didn't look very nice. I mean, usually in the hospital, you don't look your best, you know. You don't have pictures of you in the hospital, of the places around the house. You just look kind of nasty, really. 
Well, the sides were up in her bed, and she was gripping those with white knuckles. She hadn't slept in three days. Do you know what it's like? You know what you look like when you haven't slept in three days? That's even worse. Because she was afraid in her sleep she'd die and go to hell, and she was afraid to go to sleep. She was too scared to go to sleep, though she was dying. So I sat down by her bed and told her that her son had asked me to come and talk to her. So I went, went through the plan of salvation and I asked her if she agreed with all that. And she did. And then just as I got to the end, she started going into convulsions. I go, oh, I've killed this woman. It was my first time going to a person's bedside. And, you know, wouldn't you know I killed them? You know, that's just me. So I ran out in the hall. Come quick, come quick. This lady's dying. The nurse ran up. We don't talk that way around here. Well, however you talk, get in there. She's dying. Get in. Don't quibble about what you call it. Get in there. So they rush in with the carts, and the doctors are in there. And I'm out in the hallway beating my head against the concrete wall. And about 20 minutes, they get through, and they come out, and they go, she's fine. We've stabilized her. You can go back in and talk to her. Oh, Lord, thank you. So it was one of those deals where I was afraid for her to see my face because I thought it set her off again. But it didn't. And I said, uh, Ma'am, do you remember me? Remember where we were? Yes. She was very clear. I said, ma'am, do you think Jesus Christ is a trickster? No. Why would you ask that? And this is a woman who, if she has so little breath, she can take, say two words at a time and then catches her breath and says two more words. So I had to be very careful what I asked. And I said, well, he said, you know, if you come to me in trust and submission, I won't push you away. Have you come to Christ in trust and submission? Yes, but you're not sure he would save you, so you think he's some kind of a trickster. Maybe his word isn't good? Oh, no. Why don't you simply thank the Lord that he came and died for you and rose for you and thank him for being your Savior? Have you ever thanked him? No, I never thought of it. And in very halting speech with very low breath, she thanked the Lord for saving her. And then her, son, her grandson came in. I said, Les, share your testimony with your grandmother. So he did. And, and so she got tired and fell asleep, and I left, and I came back. Couldn't come the next day. Two days later, I'm back, and she was gone. I looked in her room, and I said, I haven't heard that she perished. So I ran down the hall. Is Mrs. So-and-so here? Yeah, she's in her room. Well, I was just there. She's not there. Well, unless somebody stole her, she's still in her room. So I went back, and since she felt better, she went and got her hair done, You know, I never thought about having my hair done when I had my surgery. I just wanted to get out of there. But she had her hair done, and she had had a bath, and she was looking very different. I didn't even recognize her. And so, ma'am, remember? Yes. And she was a different woman. She was radiant. She had all of her kids and grandkids come over, and she told them how Jesus Christ saved sinners, even old, clueless sinners who never, never, ever took him at his word. Are you taking Christ at his word? Can you thank him? I hope you can. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I thank you that though we are foolish and slow of heart, proud in so many subtle ways, self-focused, full of ourselves, you endure and you bear with us and you show us truth to bring us out of ourselves and change us. You want the brothers and sisters of this congregation to be conformed to Christ, and you're willing to take them through whatever to to get them there. Thank you for what they're in right now. Thank you for what is on their plate they have to work on. 
I pray that they would give them grateful hearts. I pray that the unbelievers among us would see their unbelievers. They would see that their ingratitude and their self-fixation is such a horrible sin, so proud, so ugly. Would you have mercy upon them? Lord, I don't ask you to show yourself to them. I ask you to show them to them, that they would see how ugly their heart really is, and they would loathe it, and they would cry out for someone who can really save them, the Savior Jesus Christ. Would you be with them in the meeting this afternoon? Would you make this meeting profitable? Would you take glory for yourself? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.